Beautiful. I grew up in a beardless home. My dad, no beard. My grandfather, no beard. My mum, no beard. I always wanted to grow a beard because I always connected that beards were for great people. Um, Beards were a symbol of masculinity, symbol of strength. So I always wanted to grow one. But every time I did attempt to grow one, I was always shot down in a violent flame of insults because I was told by some people that apparently I don't have the face to pull off a beard. Uh, In my mind, I still think that I can do it, but people keep reminding me, no, 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 no. Beards for me were always connected with good things, with strength. And today's sermon title is called Beards, Rocking Chairs and Neuroplasticity. You'll see how it all relates. It'll be fine. We'll come back to it. But because I always thought that beards were connected with good things, when it came to what my actual image in my head of what God was like, of course, what did he have? He had a beard, obviously. So when I was younger, if I was, to, if I was asked to draw God, of course, he would be an older man. He would be wearing what color, do you think? Yeah, good, good. And his beard, gray or white? Thoughts? White? I think white. Some say gray. I think white. White's good. Similar to high school teacher Graham. I want to be that man's friend. I said to one of the staff last week, that is a man who I want to get to know. So my picture of God, he of course has a beard, he has a white chair, and he sits on a rocking chair overlooking the universe. That's, that's honestly how I pictured him. Can you see it in your mind? The fact of if that is a correct image or not, it's not really the point. The point is, is that every single one of us, whether we believe in God or not, we have a picture of who he is, like an actual image in our mind of what he or she or it or whatever. But we have an image of the divine in our minds. And if we were to ask all of you on a piece of paper, you've got two minutes to write or draw your picture of God, you would find that there would be an incredible amount of variety. There was a well-documented study where a group of adults were actually asked to come together and draw pictures of God. Some people drew a face, more more concrete images, whereas others would draw more abstract things like a mirror or light or the sun. And even people that were in the same neighborhood, the same network, even the same churches, they would still draw God differently. Isn't that interesting? That regardless who we are, regardless of our backgrounds, we each draw God slightly differently. The reason that we do that is because we each see God slightly differently. Even if you've grown up together, even if you're in the same place, we each see him slightly differently. Why is that? Because our brains are each individual, totally different. But what does that have to do with anything? There's a little word called neuroplasticity, which took me a long time to say over and over and over again, so I wouldn't fumble it. So I think I've learned it. But the idea is this, is there was once an idea that your brain developed to a certain point, That when you got to a certain age, it would stop kind of growing and developing. It would be a bit static in its development. When it gets there, it's done. It's finished. However, neuroscience says that that's not the case, that your brain continues to grow and develop. You change your environment. You begin to change how your brain works. You begin to change how it's wired. It's interesting, right? The fact that your brain is more like Play-Doh, where it can be molded and changed, it's got rhythm to it. It's got movement to it. It's not locked in. That whole concept's called neuroplasticity, the fact that your brain can change. But what does all of that have to do with God? What we're going to talk about today 
is the idea that by contemplating God, by focusing on God, you actually change the way your brain works. And what's interesting is it's not just a bunch of Christians that come up and say, by the way, if you spend a little bit of time with God, your brain will change. It's interesting. The book, I'm going to give you the book at the end, which I encourage you to read. But it's an atheist and an agnostic neuroscientist write, compile all their studies, put it together in a book. And they say, not Christian people, that contemplating God, focusing on him, will actually have dramatic changes in your mind, which will change the way you live. That's interesting, right? Because... If you're a Christian, you've probably heard of this verse before being mentioned. It's on screen. It's the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 2. And this is how it goes. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God, what's that word? Transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. If you're a Christian, you've probably heard this before. Would that be right? Okay. The idea is, is that we like to go up to people who aren't Christians and say, if you have a relationship with God, he's going to change your life. Would you believe that? Yep. If you're a Christian in the room, you probably would. If you're a non-Christian in the room, if somebody comes up to you and says that this magical man in the sky who has a beard and sits on thrones and whatnot, if you read the Bible, you get the imagery, but this strange man in the sky is going to change my life. If you were in a non-Christian shoes, would that be weird to you? Yes or no? Of course it does. Be like me coming up to you and saying, by the way, if you drink decaffeinated coffee, it will change your life. It will. And if I said that passionately and wholeheartedly, if I went up to Rick Dunn and said to him, mate, you've got to make the switch. Decaffeinated coffee in our seed cafe, which is available before all of our services every week. You need a nice plug. You need to change your bean. It'll change your life. Is he going to believe me, yes or no? Probably not. That's how far-fetched Christians can come across to unchristians, to people who don't do the church thing. What I want to show you today, if you've got questions or doubts about this, there's actually a scientific backing that demonstrates how this is true, which I think is pretty interesting. Because gone are the days where science was on one side of the equation, and then faith and God was on the other they are not competing things. In fact, beautifully, they merge together and actually strengthen each other. Do you want to see how? Cool. A couple of disclaimers. Number one, if you know anything about the brain and actually where things are, you will mock and laugh at my drawing that I'm about to show you. I have simplified it because I am but a simple man and need it really, really basic. So try not to scoff and laugh too hard, okay? But the point is I'm trying to make it simple. Secondly, I will give you the book at the end, which I would love for you to read if you want to know more. Super accessible, and it's great. Third thing, I think it's interesting, so let's find out. All right, here's a picture of a brain. Here we go. Nicely done. It's coming up. There, sweet. Okay, that is your brain. Everyone's kind of looks similar. It's a little bit different. Whatever. Right at the front part of the brain. Do you know what that's called? Yep, and it's also referred to as the frontal lobe. Yep, your prefrontal cortex all in there. Frontal lobe. There you go. That part of your brain is the thinking part of your whole system. Let me hear you say thinking. Thank you. We're there. Now... This part of your brain is where your logic lives, your rationale lives, yeah? It's the accountant's brain. Very, very particular, very, very precise, logical, clear. Accountants, you live here. There's a second part of your brain, and again, please don't mock the illustration, kind of towards the middle, down the bottom bit, is called your limbic system. 
Okay? Your limbic system is your emotional brain. The creatives in the room, the musicians, the poets, the songwriters, you live here. And these two people, the poets and the accountants, in your brain are constantly at war with each other because they have very differing opinions on how you should run you. So these guys are at war. They're competing. One says you've got to be rational, clear, direct, let's go. The other one is, no, let's love. Let's be free. Let's embrace. Both of those are in us. Some are more dominant in others, but there's one more piece to the equation. And this one kind of works as a bridge point between your analytical brain and your emotional brain. And it's not accurate on this, but you'll get the idea. Little piece in there, and it is called the anterior cingulate. Now, this beautiful piece of brainy goodness does some incredible things. Because on one side, you've got your thinking brain, and on the other side, you've got your what? Emotional brain. The anterior cingulate works to help you out. And to illustrate, I have a seesaw. I want you to imagine that the frontal lobe is on one side, and your limbic system is on the other. The anterior cingulate, that bit in the middle, kind of acts like that fulcrum point. It balances things out. I did this to this next story to my last church. So I'll tell you this. I, was, I just read this and found it really very interesting. I don't think it had anything to do with the sermon I was talking about that day, but I felt like we could tie it in there. So I said to them, you know when you get scared? Hands up if you've ever been scared before. Okay, good, 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 good. Okay, some of you are fearless. This is great news. I said to them, when you get scared, which part of your brain do you think fires up? the emotional part, right? Your limbic system. It takes over. And then I said, if somebody, and I talked really quietly, that if somebody was to just yell, and when I said yell, I actually yelled in the mic, and you watch collectively the church go, it was very funny, uh, very traumatic too. There was a lot of old people in the church (laughs) and a lot of crying children afterwards. So I had to apologize to mums and grandmas. So I've decided to not do that here. But the kids are gone. No, it's fine. You know that when you get scared, right? You'll either jump or you'll scream or you'll make a noise. Blood flows so fast to your limbic system, so fast, in fact, that it shuts down your frontal lobe. Ever notice how when you get particularly emotional, you can't think straight? Have you been there before? Like when you are overtaken with anger and you do things that you usually wouldn't do or a normal sane person would do. Do you know what I'm talking about? You might run up to that door and punch it hard or kick it open and make a massive scene that a normal person probably wouldn't or shouldn't do, right? It's because blood is flowing to the part of your brain that doesn't have logic, doesn't have that reasoning ability. You are being run by your limbic system, particularly a part called the amygdala. Loves to make you scared. So what happens is when this part of your brain kicks up, fear, anxiety, and anger happen. You're with me so far? Okay. Cool thing is, so when one side goes up, the other goes down. So how do you get the other side up? When you contemplate God, this is the important bit. So if you weren't listening before, this is a good point. When you contemplate God, when you focus on him, like really intentionally focus on him, blood flows to two key areas, your anterior cingulate and your frontal lobe. What this does, as that blood flows, 
shuts down the fear centers of your brain, particularly your amygdala. It shuts down the anxiety-inducing parts of your brain, which is interesting, right? It shuts down fear, anxiety, the whole bunch, shuts it down. And when these two parts of your brain are working hand in hand and blood is flowing to this section, you become compassionate and empathetic as a person. Isn't that interesting? It means then that when you focus on God, your whole person changes. But here's the thing. You can't just have any picture of God. At the deepest core of who you are, if you believe that God is vengeful and vindictive, you might say with your words that God is love. You might sing the songs in worship that God is good, but at the core of your being, if it's been drilled into you from perhaps years of church or drilled into you by a bad experience or it's just an idea that you find you cling to, if you believe at the core of your being that God is against you, when you spend time focusing on him, that doesn't happen. The reverse happens. So if your picture of God is one who is angry, then the anger parts of your brain will be activated. You'll become more anxious. You'll become more angry. You'll become more fearful. Have you ever found that the people sometimes that you come into contact with who have a very angry picture of God are not always the nicest people? Do you get what I'm saying? Because your picture of God, this is my point, your picture of God directly impacts all of you. It frames you and it shapes you. But if you at the core of your being believe that God is actually for you and is in love with you and is here on your side, then when you take time thinking about that, the love part of your brain fires. The goodness part of your brain fires. You become compassionate as a person. You become empathetic as a person. This is why churches are called to do good things in our community and around us because the idea is we have a powerful picture of God in our minds that changes every core of who we are. Do you hear what I'm saying this morning? But here's the other thing. When do you take time to focus on God? I'm talking to the Christians this morning, right now. Ask in your own minds, when do you take time to think about God? If it was a spiritual discipline or an exercise, what's an exercise that we do corporately as Christians that help us to think about God? Throw it out to me. Okay, prayer, awesome. Now this is good, I'm glad you went there. How long do our prayers go for in our country, roughly? Again, it depends who's praying, right? But generally speaking, how long do they go for? You can talk to me. What do you think? Yeah, maybe. Good. Are they generally really, really long or really, really, really short? They tend to be on the shorter side, right? And who is the focus of those prayers? Think seriously. When we pray, who are we focusing on? Us! We say, God, thank you for a wonderful day, but can you be with this person? Can you be with that person? Can you do this? Can you help me? It's all about us. Now, good things, right? We want God to be for us. We want God to be with us. We want him to help others. But who is the one who is in control in that conversation? We are. The majority of your prayers and my prayers, unless you are vastly different, Often we are at the core. We are at the center. We are telling God which way to go. And even if we're not, it becomes a lot 
based on requests of God. Do you know what I'm talking about, Christians in the house? We petition God to do things. Is there anything bad with that? No, but if that is all we do, we're missing out. That's my point to you this morning. Because when you have a prayer life that's not just about you doing things or telling God what to do or where to go, your brain can change. So how do you do that? How do you actually take time? The Bible's got a term for it, and it's interesting in Christian circles because it often gets a bit of a bad rap, mainly because when I say the word, you'll probably get an image in your mind of what I'm talking about. The word is, you want to guess? Meditation. Now, what we think of when somebody says meditation, we think of a fine, wonderful human being sitting on the floor, perhaps in a very intricate little thingy thing, making, I can't even do it, it's a pants, sitting down on the floor, and it's like we don't know what to say, where we go, um, do you know what I'm saying? That's what we think of when we think of meditation quite often. When the Bible talks about meditation, that's not what it's talking about, right? Let me show you some stuff. I've got three verses that I want to show you. How many verses? All right, they're in the book of Psalms, which, yeah, you'll see why. I'll show you. Number one, I will meditate on your precepts, your ways. I fix my eyes on your ways. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. When the Bible uses this word meditation, what it's talking about is focusing on what God has to say and who God is. Do you hear that? taking time out to not just call on God for specific things, but actually making time where you just sit and contemplate and focus on the wonder of who he is. If you're a non-Christian, you're probably thinking, this is very strange. I'm coming back to you. Stick with me. I'm coming back. But here's the thing. We are called to not just study the Bible. Because if I was to ask you, what's the best way to know and understand God? A lot of times we would say, studying the Bible, right? Here's the thing. If all we do is pick up the Bible, open it up, and find out stuff, all we're getting is information. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? Where we can answer the quiz that Kieran did this morning. Where we have all the Bible facts. I didn't have the Bible facts. I didn't grow up in the church. So those experiences were very uncomfortable for me. But the point is, is all we do is open up the Bible and we read through it. And we learn facts. That's not helpful to the degree of what God is calling us to. See, God is calling us for more than just information. But he's calling for transformation of our hearts. A way to be able to take it to that next level is not simply to read the words on the page and go, oh great, that's what it means. But it's to take time out of your day and contemplate what those words actually mean. Do you hear what I'm saying? It means actually stopping, pausing, and thinking about the words before moving on. All through the Psalms, have you ever seen that funny little word, if if you're familiar with the Bible and you've read through it, S-E-L-A-H. Have you seen that before? If you're opening a Bible and go to the book of Psalms, you'll see it. And it always, all throughout it has this word, S-E-L-A-H. Do you know what that word means? Pause and think about it. All throughout the Bible are these markers to say, hey, this is some gold here. Stop and think about what this means for your life. As Christians, it's really easy to cognitively understand that God is for us. Do you hear what I'm saying? 
It's really easy to cognitively understand that God loves us, but to actually go to the point where we sit with that and ask God to show us what that means in our life, that's taking things to the next level. When we pause, we stop, and we think about who God is, our brains physically change. You become a more compassionate and empathetic person. So to come back to our verse that we looked at in the beginning. In the book of Romans, it says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, what is good and pleasing and perfect. The point of this verse is it's more than just a nice saying, isn't it? What God is speaking about here is neuroplasticity. He's saying, I want to get in your head. I want to change your thoughts, change the way you think, which will flow out into the rest of your life. Too many times, non-Christian people are turned off from Christianity because of who? Christians. Sometimes we are our own worst enemy. Do you know what I'm saying? We can get in the way because we say things like this, but does our life change? What God is encouraging you and I to do this morning is to take these words seriously. Because at the end of the day, we fit into our life what we want to fit in, don't we? Have you ever got to the end of a busy day and thinking to yourself, I'm so flat out, so busy, got so much on tomorrow. Then you find 30, 45 minutes for that House of Cards episode. Or whatever it is, whatever is your poison, insert it there. At the end of the day, am I right in saying we find time for what we want to find time for? You with me? What God is saying to you is, hey, I want to challenge you. They say in the book that I'll tell you at the end, 30 minutes is the sweet point. Mm. 30 minutes is the sweet point. Was that Ezzy? Yeah, sweet. Uh, 30 minutes is the sweet point. Anything over 30 minutes won't really do anything more. 30 minutes of you pausing and thinking about, not yourself, not about others, but God and the love that he has and the words that he has written will change the way that you think. The more often you do it, the more that it will reinforce. The more that it will reinforce it. When we do that and take time, we become Christians who are real. Christians who don't just have a set of ideas in our head, but actually have actions that back them up. And it's hard. 30 minutes is almost impossible, right? But at the end of the day, we find time, what we want to find time for. This is my challenge to you. If you're a church person in the room, I encourage you to not only read the words of Scripture, but actually pause and think about them. Ask God, what does this mean for me? Ask Him to show you. Focus on the love that He has for you. If you're a non-Christian in the room, I think this whole thing's completely crazy and strange. Check this out. The authors of the book, which is called, I've forgotten. I'll have a look. I've actually forgotten. I've genuinely forgotten. How God Changes Your Brain. There it is. How God Changes Your Brain by Andrew Newberg. The guys who wrote this book, I legitimately forgot. The guys who wrote this book, they're not Christians, right? So they say in there, even contemplating the idea of God will bring change to your life. You don't have to even believe that he's real, but simply pausing and focusing attention on a God that is love, even though you don't believe it and you're fully aware of that, it will change the way you think. 
Because in each of us, we develop a network for the connections around us. If you're married or you're you're dating somebody, in the beginning, you hold hands a lot. You know what I'm saying? And a whole bunch of other goodness. A whole bunch of other goodness. But eventually with time, what is the tendency that can happen? Talk to me. You start to break... Nothing, exactly like the sound in the, in the room. Nothing. <laughs> but we might start off being quite close. You know this, yes? And over time, it gets familiar. Do you know what I'm saying? And slowly, the distance begins to break. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Here's the point. The same way we do things with relationships is the same with God. You have to put energy and effort into connecting with the people in your lives because the more that you exercise those neural networks in the brain, the more stronger they get. The more I'm close to the people that I love the more love I will feel for them because that's how your brain works. If you feel like you're lacking love for somebody, put the effort in and love them because the more you do it, the more you exercise your brain, the stronger it gets, the greater the connection you have. It's the same thing with God. You might not believe in him. You might never have. And you might struggle when you come to church and listen to this foolishness because that's perfectly normal. You haven't got that God network in your brain. If you're challenged at all this morning and even mildly interested in this idea of God, I encourage you to contemplate a God who loves you even if you don't believe in him. Because that will start that beautiful God network that the Holy Spirit can work through. If everything we say is confusing to you, let me tell you this. Start by contemplating a God who loves you even if you don't think he exists. For my church people in the room, if you grew up with a picture of God where he is against you, challenge yourself, try as hard as you can to concentrate on an image of a God who loves you, not the one that is against you, because that's not the real image that we read in scripture. What we see when we open up the word of God is a God that is for you. Think about that because your brain will change. May we not just let these words be words, but may we take them seriously. And allow God, all that he is, to live, breathe, and move, and transform our minds. I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray together. God, we come to you and we don't ask you for anything, but instead we thank you for who you are. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us as a God who is for us and a God who loves us. Thank you that you're on our side. Thank you that you walk before us, beside us, and behind us all at the same time, moving us, directing us. Thank you that we can trust you. We can walk with you. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.